Well, it's a beautiful morning to be in the house of the Lord. Um, before we really dive in and get started, I do have a confession to make. Last week, I was very emphatic telling you that we were going to get through 7 and 8, and we are not. We're going to get through chapter 7 this morning. So I'd invite you to open your Bibles there with me to Genesis chapter 7. A little bit for you from last week, the last verse of chapter 6 was verse 22, thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. And we'll see that same little phrase repeated in chapter 7. It actually shows up a number of times in chapters 6, 7, and 8. And so that's, that's important. We know that Noah was just. He was declared righteous according to his faith. And he did the things that God told him to do. He didn't just hear them. He didn't just listen to them. He actually went the step further and he did them, which is important for us to take note of. Now, let's read through chapter 7, the first 12 verses together, and then we'll start moving through it. Verse 1, Genesis chapter 7, Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two of each animals that are unclean, a male and his female, also seven of each birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of the earth. For after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters were on the earth. So Noah, with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives, went into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds, and of everything that creeps on the earth, two by two they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And that happened just like God warned Noah it would. Verse 1, the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark, you and all your household, because I've seen that you're righteous before me in this generation. Now, God is giving this invitation to Noah. Come into the ark. Come. It's interesting that he uses the word come, not go into the ark. It seems that God is ushering Noah and his family into the ark with him, in a sense. That is certainly where they would find their salvation from the flood, in a general sense. Salvation just being saved from something. They were certainly saved from the flood through the ark. Come into the ark, you and all your household. And take note that he's not just interested in Noah. Noah and his whole family. There is something to be said for that. And this invitation is the same invitation that he extends to every one of us. Come. You know, the door's open today. Come. 
And in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus extends this invitation, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, remember the name for Noah in Hebrew means rest. And it's interesting that that rest shows up in Jesus's invitation to come. I will give you rest, Noah, in the Hebrew. In Revelation 4, a door to heaven was opened and God extended this same invitation to John. Come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. Now, obviously, God was in heaven during that scene in Revelation 4, and he was beckoning for John to come up and join him in heaven. And that's when he receives all of these visions, these experiences of mostly the tribulation. Come, come up here, and I will show you the things which must take place after this. And here in Genesis, God says, come into the ark. Not go into the ark. You know, and people debate over this. Scholars have different opinions. Come into the ark, you and all your household. Does that mean that God is actually calling Noah from inside the ark to come join him? It's possible. Verse 2, you shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female. Two of each animal that are unclean, a male and his female. In Genesis 6, 19, last week, we saw that God ordered Noah to bring two of every living thing with him on the ark. But now he adds this extra little detail to that instruction. He says to bring seven of every clean animal, male and female. Now, scholars will go back and forth on this. They'll go back and forth on the specific number of clean animals that God commanded Noah to take. Was it seven total between the male and female? Was it seven male and seven female? Or some take it, the Hebrew, to actually be saying seven sevens of every clean animal. Now, I have my opinion, and (laughs) I don't really know, but it makes sense to me that it would be seven total of each kind of clean animal. And that just seems to line up in a couple other ways with some other patterns that we see. An odd number of animals doesn't make a whole lot of sense, you know, if they're going in two by two, unless one of them is for some special purpose, right? And we know that there was some sort of sacrificial system in place even before this, after the fall. You know, when Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden, they had to come to God through a sacrifice. And so there was something like that instituted. What if that seventh animal, that last one that made it odd, was the one that Noah took after the ark, they disembarked from the ark, he took it and he sacrificed it. It seems that that seventh is for the sacrifice. Now, six of those animals, three male, three female, from the seven of the cleans, 
would be released into the wild to repopulate. Right, sacrifice one, release six. This is on par with man. We have eight humans coming into the ark. They're preserved through the judgment of the flood. We're not really going to count Noah and his wife for the purposes of repopulation because they were probably past their prime, right? It says that Noah was 500 years old when he had Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so 100 years later, when he's 600, we'll see that the waters came on the earth. Then it was about a year after that that they got off the, the ark and continued. So for the purposes of proliferating on the earth, we'll count Shem, Ham, Japheth, and each of their wives. And that seems to line up with the six animals and six people. So there's these little patterns that we see, and by themselves, they, you know, we're not going to build doctrine on this. We're not going to speak conclusively on it. But it seems like there were seven total of each kind of clean animal. Now, God specifies also that his command to bring two of each animal applies to the unclean animals, a male and a female. And I've hinted at this oddity a couple times now in past weeks, and we're finally going to look at it. And it's this fact that God tells Noah to bring clean animals into the ark and unclean animals, but the ceremonial definitions of clean and unclean are not given until the law of Moses, which would be about a thousand years after this. And so it's interesting to see this in the text, and it's specified, you bring seven clean animals, two of each unclean animal. So where does that leave us? How do we reconcile that oddity? Well, there are a few ways to approach this, and I don't necessarily see them as all being mutually exclusive. And I think you may agree with me as we move through these. It does seem, based on the biblical record, that God communicated to Adam and Eve what an acceptable sacrifice looked like. And Adam and Eve then passed on that knowledge to their sons, Cain and Abel. These boys knew how they were expected to bring an offering to God. They knew what that process should look like. But one day, when they went to offer their sacrifices to God, Cain went, man, I want to come my own way to God. I want to offer a different type of sacrifice. God was not pleased with that sacrifice, and therefore he was displeased with Cain. That's why we saw Cain's countenance fell, and he started to be bitter against his brother. And that eventually led to his brother's murder. Cain wanted to do it his own way, not in the prescribed way. Now, either to Adam and Eve directly, or during the course of time, God may have revealed the classes, clean and unclean, that were acceptable sacrifices to his people. Now, even though the law wasn't given until later, God certainly could have revealed his heart in this matter 
to men in other ways as he communicated with them, and even personally to Adam and Eve. So it could be that Noah was taught by one of his family members what an acceptable sacrifice would be, and thus this distinction of clean and unclean was sort of solidified in his mind. If you'll remember from our discussion of Genesis chapter 5, Adam would have been alive until Lamech, the father of Noah, was 56 years old. So Adam actually could have had a personal conversation, an ongoing relationship with Noah's dad. That puts in perspective the lifespans that we're seeing here. Only one degree of separation from Adam and Noah. Now, the second way to look at this is as an editorial clarification made by Moses. So Moses probably had several of these primary source documents that were written by the men who actually lived out these events. And where we are right here in chapter 7 was probably originally written by Noah's sons. This information was recorded and stored away. Moses would have had access to it. And in compiling and editing the book that we have as Genesis, he could have used language that he was familiar with to clarify to his readers, which were Jewish, what these animals actually were. And so Moses used his language of clean and unclean to describe what God told Noah to bring. Right? And that's another way that we can look at it. Lastly, verse 16, on down a ways in chapter 7, says that the animals went in as God had commanded him. The animals just went in, right? This seems to describe no effort on Noah's part. And so it seems that God literally brought to Noah all the animals that were to go on the ark. And so Noah, in just allowing them to come in, would have fulfilled that command from God to bring seven of the clean, two of the unclean. Right, So that would have taken hardly any knowledge on Noah's part of clean and unclean and what that classification would have looked like, but just a willingness to allow God to work. He just simply allowed the animals to go onto the ark that God had brought to him. And that's another way that we can reconcile this. And again, these aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. You don't have to just pick one and go with it. Like they can work together, kind of synergize. Now, verse three, also seven of each birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on all the face of the earth. The purpose of Noah taking these birds and all the animals for that matter on the ark is explicitly stated by God to keep the species alive on the earth. That's the purpose, right? The ark was a vessel to preserve life, to preserve it from that judgment. Now, that would be superfluous and encumbersome 
for Noah to take all of these animals on the ark if it was just a local flood. Because the birds especially, but all of, most all of the animals could have just moved along with Noah and his family. They could have migrated somewhere else where it wouldn't have been flooded. And so it seems silly to think that the Bible teaches anything but a global flood. And truly, that is what the text tells us every step of the way. Verse 4, For after seven more days I will cause it to rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. Now remember, this is still attached to that command from God, that invitation, come into the ark. Come into the ark, you and your household. And then he says, after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. A little side note, the number 40 in the Bible is usually connected to judgment. And you can see that as a common theme throughout. After seven more days, God calls them into the ark. And then after seven days, he brings the waters on the earth. You've got to get this picture because this is a great display of Noah's faith. God calls to Noah and his family saying, come into the ark. Then he tells them in seven more days, it'll start raining. Just hang tight, make your last minute preparations. It's coming. So Noah and his family are either in the ark, huddled up waiting for seven days, or they're actually going in and out, making their preparations. And then we'll see later, God shuts the ark. Can you imagine what Noah was getting an earful of? You know, from his wife, I'm sure. And from his kids, like, Dad, what are we doing? We're just sitting in this boat, waiting for it to what? To rain? Drops of water falling out of the sky? Get real. Are you sure this is what God told you to do? (laughs) They looked silly. But it was their faith that kept them there. And I, I love this picture because... Sometimes it does seem like God calls us to do something crazy. You're like, man, this doesn't make sense. I've never seen this happen before. You know, they had not seen rain. They didn't know what rain was. God tells Noah, I'm going to cause it to rain. Drops of water are going to fall out of the sky. And that is a totally foreign concept to them. But Noah obeys. Verse 5, and Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. What a testimony. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters were on the earth. Back in Genesis 5, verse 32, it told us that Noah was 500 years old when he had those three boys, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So a hundred years passed from the birth of Shem, Ham, and Japheth till the floodwaters were on the earth. A hundred years. So Noah, with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives, went into the ark, 
because of the waters of the flood. Of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds, and of everything that creeps on the earth, two by two they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. Now, this is a challenge to what I said about there being seven total clean animals. Going in two by two, it says. That going in two by two speaks or seems to speak of them going into the ark by pairs. So would it be more appropriate to think that there were seven pairs of clean animals? That's something you can decide. And we're not going to be real dogmatic on that. I personally think that verse 9, saying that they went in pairs, doesn't negate the fact that God told Noah, take seven each of every clean animal. Now, the ark was certainly plenty big enough to hold many, many more animals, actually, as we saw last week. It could have held seven of each, 14 of each, seven sevens of each. And remember that we're talking about kinds, right? Species are really an arbitrary kind of thing that taxonomists have created to help us organize the organisms. And so we're talking about kinds, dog kind, cat kind. And so it's a broader category. Verse 10 And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. And so, yeah, that that took a leap of faith, really, to stay on the ark for all those seven days. You know, and seven days itself is a very particular amount of time, especially when we're talking biblically. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Now, we're not going to touch much on the specific date that it gives us this week. We're going to deal more with the chronology next week. So we're going to put that on the back burner here. I want us to look at these two sources of the floodwaters. It says that on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. That gives us two sources for these waters. And it tells us exactly what methods God used to flood the earth in these days. In order to understand the full extent of this cataclysmic flood, it's vital for us to realize that there was more going on here than just a lot of rain, right? Because when we think of a flood, it usually means there's a lot of rain. The text gives us these two sources. It says the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and it says the windows of heaven were opened. Water was being cascaded onto the face of the earth from below and from above. And this is nothing like we see today. You know, there is no more water underneath us. 
and there's really not the same amount of water above us. It's a, we're living in a totally different hydrological system today. And the creation of both of these sources of water are mentioned in Genesis 1, verses 6 and 7. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And in our studying of that verse, we came to the conclusion that the firmament there was speaking of the earth's atmosphere. So these verses must be speaking about waters above the atmosphere and below the atmosphere. Genesis 2, verses 5 and 6, make it clear that it didn't rain on the earth in the days before Noah. It says, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. That's totally different than we see today. Sure, we have some dew, but that's not really coming up from the face of the ground. Uh, Totally different. And it seems those waters below the firmament served to irrigate the face of the ground. And so God used some some type of geothermal energy source, the earth's core is hot, we know that, to allow this water from underground to come up and water the ground. This underground network of water is what we understand to be these fountains of the great deep, which were broken up. And this would come with a great magnitude of volcanic activity. It's not just water in view here. So these fountains of the great deep, the geophysical implications of this network of water being emptied onto the earth and broken up, as it says, are enormous. You know, this is a huge change to the earth. Its climate, its topography, its atmosphere, everything's changing at this point. And are y'all tired of hearing about Henry Morris? I don't know. He's good. I'm going to keep referencing Henry Morris. In his commentary on Genesis titled The Genesis Record, Henry Morris proposes a scenario in which he explains how the breaking up of these underwater reservoirs could explain how the water would be able to first cover the earth and then recede from the face of the earth. And it's a very, very interesting scenario that he lays out. And Dr. Morris was uniquely qualified to speak on this subject because he had earned a master's degree in hydraulics and a PhD in hydraulic engineering. So very good, very good source for this. And his commentary on this subject in the Genesis record mostly went over my head. Um, So I'm not even going to really give you a rundown of it. But um, I just kind of chuckled when he wrapped it up in that chapter by referring the reader to his book, The Genesis Flood. And 
this is a quote. He said, for a detailed treatment of such matters. I was like, oh my goodness. <laughs> I don't know if I can get more than this. Um, so there's obviously plenty more meat on the bone there. He has plenty to say about the geological implications of the flood, and we'll only scratch the surface this morning. Now, the second source of these waters, we've got the fountains of the great deep, and it also mentions the windows of heaven were opened. So this second source of the floodwaters evidently came from the sky in some form or fashion. When it says that the windows of heaven were opened, it seems to be describing the loosening of that extensive water vapor canopy that was probably over all of the earth's atmosphere. And we know that that water was suspended above the atmosphere because of that verse that we looked at earlier, the waters above and below the firmament. And we've discussed the canopy theory in earlier studies, so I won't dwell on it here. But it seems that God allowed this canopy of water, which was shielding the earth from all sorts of radiation. It was compressing, if you will, the atmosphere. So there was a higher pressure in the earth's atmosphere. It seems that God allowed this water canopy to fall onto the earth in order to flood it. And there's no telling how much of the water came from which source. But experts today have figured that if you took the 330 million cubic miles of water that are presently in our oceans, and you flattened out the Earth's topography, so you brought the mountains down to sea level, valleys up to sea level, that there's enough water to cover the face of the Earth several thousand feet deep. And I think that the impact of the flood on the topography of the earth is difficult to overstate. Second Peter 3.6 says that the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. Talking about the world before the flood as having completely been destroyed. That world perished. And there was, in a sense, a new world that came after it. The world before the flood was so different than the world after the flood. Peter counts the antediluvian before the flood world to have perished. And that's a pretty strong word in the original language. When we see this upheaval and how it's talked about in Scripture, we know some radical changes happened on the earth. Changes mostly in the atmosphere, the climate, and the earth's topography. So the atmosphere. You know, we see these really long lifespans recorded in the Bible. And we absolutely take that as genuine history. But the lifespans of men right after the flood start to rapidly drop off. And that tips us off to the fact that the flood probably had something to do with that. It's likely that the removal of that vapor canopy allowed more radiation from the sun into the Earth's atmosphere. 
And that sped up the process of aging and what have you. And we've talked about it before, the pressure of the earth and the increased oxygenation in your lungs. So I'm not going to go back there, but that's also another reason that we would have seen a drop-off in lifespan. Now, the climate. We generally think that there was a universal tropical-like climate across the whole globe before the flood. And that lines up with a lot of fossils that we find, and we'll talk about that in, here in just a second. But there are tropical fossils found in Antarctica, in the South Pole, in Siberia, especially Siberia, like up in Russia, in very cold places, this tropical vegetation has been found fossilized. So that leads us to, to believe that there was a tropical climate across the whole globe. And the greenhouse effect brought by that water vapor canopy would have also been lost after the flood. And that means that the climate would have changed from a global tropical climate to something drastically different. And some creation scientists believe that there was an ice age several hundred years right after the flood. And so that flood actually triggered a shift in climate. It was like way over here, then it went way over here, and now it's kind of centered. And we see this continuous cycle of seasons. While the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. That's the very end of chapter 8. So a natural rhythm of these seasons would continue as long as the earth remained. Last of these big changes that we'll look at this morning is the topography, the actual surface of the earth changed. The breaking up of the fountains of the deep probably contributed to the mountains and the valleys that we observe in the earth's crust today. There have been villages found high in the Andes mountain range that once produced corn. Where they are, their elevation that they were found in, it's too high to grow corn. So that tells us, you know, one of two things. The Earth's atmosphere was actually different, and they could grow corn at higher elevations, or they were previously at a lower elevation. And through some shift in the Earth's crust, that mountain was formed, and that village was <laughs> taken up. So it's interesting to look at these historical records that really do corroborate what the Bible's telling us. There are also huge mountain ranges at the bottom of our oceans, and especially the Atlantic. And they just dwarf the mountain ranges that we see on top of the Earth's crust, on our continents. Verse 12. Verse 12 says, And the rain was on the earth forty days and forty nights. Now, there is no way 
with our present hydrological cycle of evaporation, condensation, precipitation, there's no way that that cycle could sustain rain like this for 40 days and 40 nights. Also, that's no local flood. 40 days and 40 nights of rain. Now let's read verses 13 through 16. On the very same day, Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two, of all flesh, in which is the breath of life. So those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Now these few verses, 13 through 16, just serve to recount and emphasize the events that transpired just leading up to the waters coming onto the earth. But verse 16 adds a couple of details that we want to pay attention to. In verse 16, God is seen doing two things. Bringing the animals to Noah and shutting the door to the ark. So those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. Now, I did mention earlier that God brought all these animals to Noah. It wasn't like Noah had to go out with a lasso on horseback with his kids and round up these animals, drag them back to the ark. No, God brought them to him. And this wouldn't be the first time that God has lined up animals for man. When Adam was tasked with naming the animals, God brought the animals to him. And this verse also says that the Lord shut him in, Noah and his family. Now, I just think how gracious it is for God to do that. That way, it would not be on Noah's conscience that he shut out an entire world of people. God took that upon himself to do for Noah. The Lord shut him in. God decided when there was no more opportunities afforded to the outside world. He made that decision. Noah just preached righteousness. That was Noah's job. And by the biblical record, it seems he did it well. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. God shut the single door to the ark and sealed it tight. And it was at that point that the fate of every person on the face of the earth was sealed. There were two categories of people at that time. Those in the ark and those outside the ark. And the door was closed. Only eight people were saved out of the entire earth's population. 
And it's been estimated that the population of the earth in those days, accounting for the longer lifespans, higher fertility, was about at the current population of the world. Around the seven to eight billion people mark. How gracious of God to make that decision for Noah. It was not up to Noah. Noah had faith and he obeyed God. And there will be a point when God closes the door of opportunity in our present age. There will be one moment. The scripture says in the twinkling of an eye, the shortest amount of time possible. And in that time, fates will be sealed. If you're in Christ, you'll be with him forever. But if you're not in Christ, you'll be apart from him forever. And corporately, there will be that door shut at the rapture. Some teachers believe that you can be saved after the rapture, during the tribulation. Some believe that you can't. I'm not here to tell you either way. I'm here to tell you. Why not get saved today? Why not trust in Jesus for your salvation before another minute passes? That's not a risk I'm willing to take. Those in Christ will be taken up to be with him. And those in the world will be left to endure the coming hardships. And there's no waving down that bus trying to hop on. Once that ship sails, it has sailed. But even personally, you know, setting aside the corporate door shutting, personally, there's a door that closes when each one of us die. Hebrews 9.27 tells us, it is appointed for men to die once. But listen to this, after this, the judgment. Are you covered in the blood? Because once you die, then comes the judgment. There's no opportunity after death to accept Christ. There is no hint of that in the Bible. That door is closed and you're in one of two categories. You're either washed in the blood of Christ or you're seen as marred with your sin. There's no gray area. You're either on the boat or you're not on the boat. And there can even come a time before you die that you've hardened your heart so completely towards God that the door will be shut, not of God's will, but of your own. That's scary. And that's why the writer of Hebrews hammers this point so hard. He, in Hebrews 3.15, the writer's quoting from Psalm 95, verse 7 and 8. He says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. The writer references this same verse twice in only a few verses. And then one more time in the next chapter. And starting in verse 12, 
in Hebrews 3, he explains the reference, saying, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. The key here is the contrast he makes between what we should do, exhorting one another daily, and what we shouldn't do is being hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. He sets up that contrast for us. And as fellow believers, we should be encouraging each other in Christ on a daily basis. That's what we're called to do. And the opposite of that, he says, is being hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And that's what sin does to you, especially when you try to suppress it and brush it under the rug. Oh, this isn't really a big deal. the deceitfulness of sin. And this idea is mentioned elsewhere in scripture and explained in more detail. But the idea is that there will come a day when you're so hardened and you've hardened your heart towards God that God will give you over to that sin. It's a startling reality, but we cannot ignore it. In Romans 1 verse 20 and on through the chapter, it gives an instance of men choosing to sin and letting God letting them go in that sin. And I want to read through this passage. You can turn there if you'd like, Romans 1 verse 20. And I'm going to emphasize the points that I want you to pay attention to. Romans 1, starting in verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. In these first three verses, we see that God has revealed himself to these people. It says that they knew God, but did not glorify him as God. They knew who he was, but they didn't make him their God. It was a head knowledge. And unfortunately, many people will miss spending an eternity with Christ by about 18 inches, the distance from their head to their heart. You know who he is. You know everything you need to know. You just have to take the step in obedience. Accept him as your Lord and Savior. They knew God but they did not glorify him as God. They chose their sins over the one true God. 
And this is what happens next, and it continues to tell us. In verse 24, therefore, so on account of what we just read, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. They chose their sin over God. First, they chose the sin. Then, it seems that God strengthened them in their position. And this is just like Pharaoh dealing with Moses and the rest of the Israelites. You've probably heard that God hardened Pharaoh's heart in Exodus 8 and 9 when God sent the plagues on Egypt. But if you look at that a little closer, you'll see that up to the sixth plague, the text says either Pharaoh hardened his heart or the heart of Pharaoh became hard. It's not until the sixth plague that the text says, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. So Pharaoh hardened his own heart at first. That was his attitude towards God and what God was asking of him. He chose his position. Then God strengthened him and set him in that position. He chose his sin. God gave him up to that sin. You can only choose to reject God so many times before he gives you over to that position. And I do want to be clear on this. If you come to God in repentance, he will accept you with open arms. He will. Doesn't matter what you've done, what you've been through, doesn't matter who you are. You will find open arms when you come to God. But we're not talking about God's willingness to accept you. We're talking about your willingness to accept him. You never know when your heart will just be a little bit too hardened to put aside your pride, to admit that you're a sinner, and to walk into his arms. You don't know when your heart will be just a little too hardened by the deceitfulness of sin to feel that little tug from him. It's a very dangerous place to be when you keep putting off that repentance. Paul, speaking of how the Christian should live differently from the unbeliever, 
in Ephesians 4, 17 through 19 says this. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. That's some strong language. He says that those Gentiles who were not following God were past feeling. They had so dulled themselves to the tug of God in their heart, they've given themselves over to lewdness. He's not mincing words there, right? This is a very real thing, and it's something we have to confront. The door to a relationship with Christ will close at some point or another. Not because he's unwilling to accept you. And if you've not accepted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you're faced with a very important decision this morning. And it's a decision that you do make, whether you realize it or not. And the Lord shut the door of salvation to the rest of the unbelieving world in Noah's day. The Lord shut him in. Verse 17, now the flood was on the earth 40 days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. 19, and the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. It says that, the waters covered the mountains by at least 15 cubits. And I've always kind of wondered how they knew that, right? We can all agree that the text is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and that's good enough for us, but there's something that makes you think a little harder. Last week, we looked at Genesis 6.15, and we saw the dimensions of the ark. And we noticed that the height of it was 30 cubits, about 45 feet. That means that the draft of the ark, the portion that would be underwater, was about 15 cubits, or about half of its height. And that means that the draft of the ark, being 15 cubits, would have to be above the mountains for it not to drag or catch on a mountaintop. Noah's sons knew that the ark didn't snag on any mountains, so the waters must have been at least 15 cubits above the mountaintops, right? And so it lends another, another kind of perspective to it. And that's why I tend to think that, you know, the waters were at least 
15 cubits above the mountains. Now, we don't know how tall the tallest mountain was at this time. We don't know for sure if the Himalayas were formed by this point, although I would venture to assume that they were. But it really doesn't matter how tall the tallest mountain was because water that's standing over 20 feet above the tallest mountain is enough to accomplish God's purpose here in wiping out life on the earth. And if the Bible says that all the mountains were covered with water, wouldn't we expect to find fossils of marine animals on top of mountains? Yeah, you would. And we do. All kinds of marine fossils have been found at very high elevations. And I told you I'd touch on this later, so I will, but I'll do it quickly. There have been fossils of woolly mammoths found in, you know, what is now a very cold climate. But these, and we tend to think of woolly mammoths as living in the cold. You know, they were all bundled up. But these fossils that we find, some of them have tropical vegetation still in their mouths. So they were munching on something tropical when they were preserved, when they were killed, buried, and compressed rather quickly. Now, this lends credence to the view that there was this moderate, temperate climate across the whole world before the flood, because that tropical vegetation wouldn't grow in a frigid environment like they were found in, right? And I'm talking mainly in Siberia is where, where these guys were found. And we also see that fossils aren't neatly arranged in the strata like evolutionists would predict. There is a general pattern of lower level, quote, organisms towards the bottom strata and more complex organisms towards the top, but it's only like a general trend. It's not hard and fast like the theory of evolution would lead us to believe. If these guys evolved over millions of years, we would expect to see very clear-cut distinctions through those strata but they're a little bit jumbled around. Some of these sediments are turned upside down. And so it's all backwards. And there is this problem for them. Now, there's another problem because secular scientists will date the rock strata, the sediment layers, based on what fossils they find in them. You know, assuming evolution. But they date the fossils by where they find them in the strata. You see, there's a problem with that. It's circular reasoning. But the flood explains the arrangement that we really do find with the fossils. Less mobile organisms are typically found in the lower strata. Things like crustaceans, the trilobites, they're one of my favorites. Things like that. 
And the organisms that are more capable of moving to higher elevations, say to escape rising floodwaters, are usually found higher in the layers. Now, again, it's not cut and dry. You see some jumbled up, which is also what we would expect of a cataclysm, chaos. But the general trend is there. And evolution does struggle to explain how we find those higher-level organisms mixed in with lower-level organisms. It is a sticky point, we'll say. And in over 270 cultures all across the world, we see records that speak of a worldwide flood. Not Christian nations. They all speak of this worldwide flood in their history or in their mythology even. We see this event seared into the minds of people all over the globe, which suggests that they had this record passed down from a common source. And of course, we know that to be Noah and his family, through which everyone else descended that's alive today. This theme of a global flood shows up with the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Hindus, the Chinese, the Druids, Polynesians, Mexicans, Peruvians, North American Indians, and in Greenland and Iceland, among other places. And the raven and the dove that we'll see next week are very common themes through most of these cultures. Verse 23. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Only the ones who stepped onto the ark in faith were saved. And that's the big point that I want to get across to you this morning. There was one ark, one door, and you had to step on through faith. And only Noah and his family stepped onto that ark. They were saved through this judgment. Now, we are promised by God, and it's clarified later in the New Testament, that he would never again flood the world completely to wipe out all flesh. Next time, he'll do it with fire, but he won't flood the world again. But there is another judgment that's coming. And I want to be on the right side of that. I don't want to be judged based on my works. I want to be judged based on the completed work of the cross. That's what I want to rest my judgment on. Because if it's up to me, I'm done for. And that opportunity is available to each one of us this morning. That's a decision that you have to make. Now, next week, we'll move into chapter 8. We're going to see God turned his attention back to Noah. 
the disembarkation from the ark. We're going to see the ark come to rest on a specific day of a specific month. And that's very rich prophetically. And we'll talk more about the chronology of the flood, when they got on, how long they were on, all of that really fun stuff. So I hope that we see you next week. As we close this week's study, please join me for a word of prayer. Thank you.